What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously in your mind and in the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior to get control of your thought process, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. So welcome to episode 13, and uh, I'm lucky for some, but not for you guys. It's Friday the 10th of July, and I have a feeling you guys are all going to be very lucky getting all of this great information. So in last week's episode 12, I talked about working with investors. This week, I'm going to be doing a Q&A session uh, responding to a number of questions that I have received from people and uh, keep those questions coming in, guys. I'm only delighted to get uh, these and, and be able to help you out with some of the answers. A quick update for all of you guys that are listening in. And um, first of all, thanks for all the great feedback. Uh, if you want to connect with me, you'll find me on my social channels. The, the tag I have for pretty much everything is Gavin J. Gallagher. The Facebook group now, the Behind the Facade community, is now at 158 members, so it's growing well. And for those of you who are listening in on the podcast and would like an opportunity to participate in these live Q&A sessions, then please join up to the group. It's called Behind the Facade Community. It's in Facebook. And these, as I mentioned, these live videos are probably about two weeks ahead of the typical podcast episode. So what have we got here? Um, a couple of questions have come in and um, I was just going to ask you guys actually that are listening in whether you would be interested in a, uh, I'm doing a bit of a straw poll here, whether you'd be interested in an additional episode a week. So instead of doing an episode on Monday to do a an episode on Monday and Friday, or would that be too much? Or would an occasional bonus episode that's thrown in on an odd Friday, would that work? I'm just kind of, I'm looking at the listening numbers and they're pretty encouraging. And I just thought to myself, I wonder if an extra episode a week would actually make a difference or whether one a week is just fine. Everybody has their kind of routines and there's only so much you can listen to anyway. It's just these Q&A sessions are kind of, they're not typical and they're introducing an unusual, sometimes it's kind of a, a, a very wide range of different questions and stuff. So it's hard to box it away and actually call it a certain uh, type of episode. So just a bit of update on the podcast. Um, the ranking on the podcast is going quite well. I've actually reached 15th place during the week and uh, in the Apple podcast category for business. And that is interesting. Well, that is in the Irish market, obviously. But um, if you consider that Gary V is in 12th and Prof G is in 18th and Jocko podcast is 11th. Those are, th those are podcasts that I listen to all the time and I actually really enjoy those podcasts. And so to be 15th amongst those guys is actually kind of mind blowing. So thanks to all of you who are listening. And uh, I really appreciate um, all of your sort of loyalty in listening to me. So shout outs. I've got a couple of shout outs for people who have actually written to me in the last couple of weeks. So David Clark, Mike Searock from Ocean Maryland, Ocean City, Maryland. Um, you're probably the furthest out that is listening in today, Mike, and um, welcome. Dean Byrne, Tom Walsh, uh, Raj Daly from London, Michal Walsh, uh, Andrew Clark, Owen Brady, Kevin Jordan, Callum Murphy, Simon Burke, 
Richard Kennedy, all of you guys, just you have written to me in the last week or two and you've just given me some encouragement and you've kind of been asking questions. And so just a little shout out to you guys to thank you. And uh, while you're listening to this here, you'll be hearing your name and going, oh, look at that. So anyway, first question is around buying foreign property. And uh, this is something I know a little bit about. And so I am going to I'm going to get into this for just briefly. This is not like a full episode. Um, this is really just sort of some advice for people buying foreign property. And one of the things that I thought I'd start with is by saying that, first of all, what is foreign property? Given the audience that is watching to this is from all over the world, it's, it's like what I'm saying is foreign could actually be your hometown. So from that point of view, the best way to kind of cover this is basically discuss the concept of buying a place that is not in your hometown or not in the jurisdiction that you live. So I live here in Ireland, but there are people listening from America. And so if I'm talking about buying foreign property in America, it doesn't make any sense to, to the guys listening in from the US. So, but if you're listening from a, a part of the world and you're thinking about buying in another part of the world, um, then let's talk about that. I've bought property in New York City. I've bought property in Spain. I actually have two properties in Spain and they can be a bit of a headache, actually. I'm going to go into some of that detail. I've put a couple of projects together in London, uh, Doha, Qatar, Dubai, and also I actually put a project together in Ghana in West Africa about uh, eight years ago. So I've been all over the place and that uh, it's it's kind of exciting and it sounds glamorous and all that, but there are drawbacks to all of this. And so it, first of all, there's a massive learning curve when you go into buying a foreign property. You've got to learn um, all about the local kind of traditions, laws, uh, all of that stuff. Everything is new. And you can make an awful lot of mistakes. And I've made some big mistakes buying foreign property because you make assumptions that are based on your experience in your local market. And uh, what I've seen, um, yeah, I, I see a comment here from someone saying Spain is a legal minefield. Tell me about it. I've actually been in the high court in Spain, I think two or three times. And it's just, it's just not pleasant because I don't know what to expect. I get these legal letters in that are extremely difficult to understand. I mean, I, I, un I speak a little bit of Spanish, but, you know, a document from the courts in Spain that it runs to 35 pages and it's all legal jargon and stuff. It's just impossible. And I try my best to put it through Google Translate and stuff and it comes back all upside down and inside out. So I just think for anybody who's thinking of buying, first of all, if it's in your if it's in your home language or in your mother tongue, that's certainly a step in the right direction because you can at least understand the language. Um, but don't just make assumptions that the legal system is the same as the one that you're familiar with. And then there's all sorts of other stuff. I mean, one of the things that I discovered uh, to my to my sort of fault was that if you buy a property in uh, and you assume that it's going to close in a certain number of weeks here in Ireland, typically you put a property up for sale within six or eight weeks, you can have the thing sold. And uh, in some countries, that is even might even sound like a long time. In other countries, it can be very, very fast. But in Spain, in the south of Spain, where I have property, it has it can take up to a year or two to actually um, sell a property because you've got their their foreign properties. They are they're basically holiday lets, and because of that, there aren't people living in the vicinity. There are people traveling in for holiday. They see your property. They start inquiring. They have this idea of buying, as opposed to it being a property that is sort of 
everyday usage. And so that's one of the things you've got to basically think about very detailed. Um, you need to kind of understand how long it's going to take you to sell. You might sort of say, oh, I'd love to own a property. You can own it pretty quickly, but selling it, you could be stuck with it for a year or two. Um, the property that I bought in Spain, another thing you got to watch for is your emotion and your ego. And that is something that can really be a downfall for an awful lot of people. I fell in love with this property in Spain and I immediately wanted it. And that was just it. Uh, and uh, there's also an aspect of ego tied into that as well, because if you're looking at a property and you're kind of thinking you're, you're imagining yourself in that property and you're imagining how kind of great it's going to look that you have this amazing property in Spain or in New York or wherever it is. Um, just be careful that you're not getting out of your emotions rule your brain and that you start thinking about it from a fairly cold and logical kind of point of view. Does the thing make sense financially? Does Is it more than, you know, are you looking at this from an emotional point of view or are you thinking about this from a financial point of view? And that is super important because you can, and it's like buying a boat. I've, I've had a speedboat in the past and the day you buy the boat is the happiest day of your life. And then the day you sell the boat is also the happiest day of your life because you, you go through this thing like the honeymoon and there's a period where you're absolutely delighted with yourself. You've got this new boat and a property is very, very similar. You're absolutely delighted. You've got this great property. You're down there, lovely weather and everything. And then the problems start to emerge and you're trying to organize it from abroad. And that can be really, really problematic. So. Anyway, getting into some of the other stuff that I found. First of all, the laws. Yes, definitely. You have to be very, very careful. Getting, uh, trying to do stuff in Spain um, has proven to be a real trouble for me. I found myself in a situation where I wanted to lease a property to somebody and I sent him a document, like a lease document, and he comes back saying, oh, this, isn't, this doesn't comply with the law and all this. So I have to go off and find out. So that usually involves hiring a lawyer and all that, which can be expensive, whereas you thought it was going to be pretty simple. Also trying to let a property, you have to understand the local taxes and the local um, agent fees. Now, when when you sell a property here in Ireland, you sell it for, I think the, the agents typically charge between one and two percent, maybe one and a half percent. That's the agent fee. In New York City, when I sold my property there, it was 6.7 percent was the percentage of that the agent actually got paid. And I can remember being absolutely blown away by that. That, you know, it, that was tens of thousands, whereas normally you'd only have to pay kind of like seven or eight thousand or whatever. And this was really uh, quite an eye opener for me and quite a, uh, quite a shock. I didn't expect it. Also, local taxes. I didn't realize that um, you've got also tax audits and things like that. I've had a situation where you have... Um, I mean, uh, New York was actually kind of relatively simple compared. You do have state taxes and you do have city taxes and you have all of these kind of things that were all new to me. You didn't have that. Don't, don't, we don't have that kind of stuff in Ireland. We have commercial rates that you pay to the local government and that's it. When in New York it was a state tax on the rental, there was city taxes, there was all of this kind of extra stuff. So when I got into all of that, I started realizing that, oh, wow, I've missed so many payments and I had to go log on to this kind of city payment platform and I had to make all these back payments and I was penalized and stuff. Spain is the very same. We had a, a tax auditor came along and uh, these local tax people in Spain can be pretty vicious. The guys get paid a commission 
for every penny that they pull in in terms of back tax and stuff like that. And I had done absolutely nothing wrong, but the guy had spotted some tiny loophole that my accountant had not realized was wrong for this for the I think the municipality that he was in and it was out by like half a percentage point or something and the total amount that he wanted was 15,000 euro and I can remember thinking what how like how is this possible so in the end the guy that my my accountant negotiated with these guys and got it down to 5,000 and then he said, came to me and said, Gavin, I got it down to 5,000. And I was like, wait, hold on a second. 5,000, even 5,000 is too much. I don't want to pay this. And he said, well, Gavin, you can fight it, um, but it will take you probably two years uh, before you're in court. And you, in that time, there'll be interest amount, you know, adding up on that 5,000. And you'll have to hire lawyers and you have to do all this stuff. And there's no guarantee that you'll be let off the 5,000. And so what did I do? In the end, I just paid the 5,000, but it was through gritted teeth. I was absolutely furious that I was in this situation. And that is when the, the honeymoon starts to run out and you start to think to yourself, what, you know, why did I buy this damn place? You know, and if you're not getting use of it now, at the moment, I have a beautiful villa in Spain sitting there empty because COVID-19 like last year I went down in June and I spent a good couple of weeks down there and then I was back again in August so you got good use of the property and you can also rent it in the summer but at the moment it's just sitting there there's not really much of a rental market because of COVID-19 and very few people are traveling because of COVID-19 now I, I guess I could get a flight but I think the flights cost an absolute fortune at the moment because of social distancing and all that so then anyway, th that's really it. I, I just wanted to kind of go into that very briefly. I think there's a possibility I'll do a future episode on specifically on foreign property purchases. But for now, I think that just answers the question. And um, let's get on to some of the other questions. So from Jean, from Jean-Francois Bonnet, Jean asked, she, she says that she is hoping to find a property um, at a good discount in 2021. And she was asking if I could comment on this. And uh, definitely uh, Jean-Francois, I think I'll, is that how I pronounce it? Definitely, I think you're going to find bargains in the coming year or two. And I'm, I'm like, I don't like to be a, a negative person. I'm actually pretty positive and, and optimistic most of the time. But I do think that the, the, our economy is in for a really, really rough ride. And because of that, I think the economy, um, because of what it's going to go through, through bankruptcies and through unemployment. And if you look at all of the different things that are coming out of the IMF and the government, the UK government, the EU, all of these places, they're all predicting these massive falls in GDP. And I just think that we could be looking at a couple of years of really, really difficult economic times. And it doesn't make any sense for people looking at the US stock market because if you look at the US stock market it's charging ahead like nothing's happening at all there's a complete disconnect there that is not what is going on in the real economy and I think the real economy is what will impact the the property market and the property market is going to definitely fall but there is always a lag between the real economy and the property market what happens is people lose their jobs companies shut down um, all of this kind of stuff happens and the landlord is is kind of insulated from the fact that he he, you know, he collects rents 
somebody stops paying rent, he, he thinks, OK, maybe I'll be able to pay it next month or the month after or whatever. He gives them some time. Meanwhile, the bank are asking for payments. The landlord says, well, this guy, you know, he's going to pay me next week or next month or whatever. And there's this lag period. And then when the guy moves out of the property and the landlord is there, he's going to spend a couple of weeks trying to find somebody to go into the property. He's not going to immediately capitulate and try and put the property on the market. Generally speaking, most people try to fight their way out of the corner that they're in. And that is what happens. And that's why these property lags happen. What will happen, though, is eventually banks will start pulling the plug on people because they haven't paid mortgages for a length of time and, and stuff like that. And when that happens, you're going to have a situation where the bank starts sort of putting the foot down and say, right, give us payment now or we're going to appoint a receiver. We're going to take the property off you. And when that starts to happen, you'll start seeing distressed properties. You'll see people in a panic to sell the property before this happens because the bank will sell it lower than you would be prepared to sell it. So if you, you know, if, if a receiver gets the property, the, the receiver puts it into one of these auctions and they sell it, you know, to the first buyer and that, that person could pay an absolute nothing for it. I mean, it could be an extremely low price. So you have a better chance of selling that property for a price that you would feel half acceptable. But the reality is you're going to have to swallow it and you're going to have to kind of accept that the price has fallen dramatically. And so people hang on for a while. People don't immediately capitulate. That's what I saw happen in 2008. The recession came in 2008. Everyone, all the big banks started going under in 2008 and 2009. But it wasn't until 2012 when the property market in Ireland was at its absolute you know, the bottom of the market and you could pick up property at extremely low prices. But by that stage, people had had four years of really, really difficult times. And so they weren't really feeling any energy to actually buy at that stage. They were thinking they were all in this kind of negative mindset. And it was only when foreign people came in, like these big American funds and stuff, they came in and they saw the prices. They started picking all the stuff up for, for pennies on the pound. So I do think that that is what is in store for us here. Perhaps not as bad because of the, the structure of this market now is different. It's not an, the economy has been affected by COVID-19. It has not been affected by uh, massive overborrowing and things like that. Um, so it could be a slightly different recession that we're looking at. But I do think that prices will fall. And I think the way to find it is to start going out there and getting very busy uh, looking at the prices, watching the market, looking at comparables and just for now observing um, this, you know, this question about finding a discount in 2021. It is the kind of thing that it's, it's going to take some time. But as long as you're watching the market today, you'll recognize a good price when you see it then. Whereas if you're looking at it today and think I have to buy, I have to buy, I have to buy, you don't actually know what represents a good price unless you've been studying the market for a while. So study the market, watch what's happening, always look for comparable evidence. Um, I'll be going into that on another question further down, but comparable evidence is where you, you don't look at the price itself, you look at what prices are going in the same area. So if you know that a property sold for 200,000, you know, a year ago, and you can get a property now in the same area for 100,000, you know you're getting a bargain. If you're getting it for 200,000, then probably you're overpaying because the fact is last year everything was different and if somebody is trying to sell something for the same price as they got last year or as the property in that area got last year then it has not been discounted yet and so you are probably overpaying so bear that in mind um also 
one of the things that I've got to suggest here is that decisions that you make in around um, purchasing property, it is very, very much personal, right? There are three things that I look for when I'm looking at a property. I look at the location. I mean, there's everyone talks about location, 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 but it's actually the, the three most important things are not all location. The three most important things are your timing, your location and your agenda, because you might find a perfect property. Definitely location is important. If you find prime location, you'll never have difficulty selling it. You buy in a bad location, you can find it almost impossible to give away the property. And so that location is critical. But timing is also critical. You can buy a great property in a good location, uh, but get the timing wrong and you'll lose money. If you buy, you know, in the, be the, you know, the best location in Dublin, best location in New York, best location in London, doesn't matter where, you buy that at the top of the market, a year later, you're going to be at the bottom of the market or a couple of years later, you're going to have lost a lot of money on that property. So your timing is everything. You get that wrong, it doesn't matter where you buy. But the third thing that kind of overrules those two before is your agenda. And by that, I mean, if you're in a situation where you say you own the adjoining property, that makes you a special purchaser. Now it doesn't actually matter. You're buying that for strategic reasons, not because of the timing and not because of the, yes, because of the location, but the location is not as relevant because you have a very specific reason be owning the adjoining property to buy that property. In addition to that, if you're a person who is hunting for your first home and you have money to do it, and you don't want to spend the next three years living in rented accommodation, well, then that suits you like that. You're not buying, you're not trading the asset. You are looking for a home. And so that, you know, that's different. What you just want to make sure, though, is that you don't buy something that in a year or two's time is worth 30% less. And so you end up with a mortgage that is perhaps underwater. That would be the big problem with getting the timing wrong. But your agenda is so important. Um, you've also got people that are buying because it's a very, very unique property and the chances are it will never come up for sale again. That's, again, a totally different reason why you would buy. It's not, you know, location and timing don't matter in those specific circumstances. So timing, location and agenda, those are the three things that I think are very important when it comes to buying a property. So Jean-Francois, I hope that answers your question. And now I'm going to go and I'm going to answer a question that came in from David Alvarez. Now, David is purchasing a leasehold property. It's got a 125 year lease and he wants to convert it into four or five flats or apartments with some retail units on the ground floor. And he wanted to know about the long leasehold versus freehold property. And um, for any of you who are not familiar with the terminology, I'll just explain. So. There are freehold means you own the property in perpetuity. No one can ever kind of take it from you. But long leasehold, usually it means that there is like a hundred and hundred year lease or 200 year lease. Here in Ireland, we actually have 999 year leases. So there is, um, you know, a lot of the reason that people, one of the reasons that these long leaseholds exist, first of all, if you go back into the 1850s, people created 999 year leases because there wasn't, inflation back then and so you wanted somebody to go you had a piece of land you wanted somebody to build a building on it and so you leased the building to them uh, the land to them and you expected them to build a building on that so it was called a ground rent and you would give them 999 years 
And what that was effectively meant that you would get paid this amount of money for 999 years. But then inflation caught up with this. And eventually you have a situation now in, in certainly where I'm from here in Ireland, that people are paying like uh, five euro a year ground rent on a property. So clearly the person who originally had that piece of land no longer cares about collecting five euros per year. The long leasehold is now where the value resides. So the person who has the 999 year lease has all of the value. Um, one of the reasons why long leaseholds are created is actually to, is not for the ownership. It's more for control. So, for example, if you have an apartment building that has, say, a lift, an elevator, a basement uh, and various equipment and plant um, on the roof and things like that, you need all of the apartment owners to contribute to the upkeep of that. And unless you have that situation where people have a leasehold interest, you're not able to enforce any of the, you know, force them to pay those bills. And one of the things that I've seen in the past, it's really irritating as well, is when somebody who lives on the ground floor and they feel like that they, they don't use the lift, so why should they have to contribute to the lift at all? And I mean, it, it, you know, in one sense, it sounds like a fair point, but the reality is, is that every single person in the building contributes to the total cost of the shared services in the building. So the water tanks on the roof, the cleaning of those, the pipes, the security systems, uh, all of that stuff has to be maintained. And so the building management company has to collect an amount of money from everybody and that is used then to facilitate all this cleaning. And if you've got somebody saying, I'm not paying that, I don't have to pay that, then other people start to sort of say the same thing and you end up, nobody's paying anything. And so in order to enforce that kind of situation, people created these long-term rents, uh, long-term leaseholds. And that means that they can be turfed out or there can be kind of uh, measures brought against them if they refuse to pay. So that is probably one of the, the, re the main reasons why these things exist. And so the, generally speaking, there's not a great amount of value difference between freehold and a long-term leasehold. However, where I have seen it now, um, I'll give you a sh small example. This is an unusual example, but I, had, I was involved in a business, a car parking business. And when I was 21, the building was completed. We developed this building and we turned it into a, a, a car park business. And we signed a 35 year lease, 35 years. And it sounded at the time I was, you know, in my early 20s. And I remember thinking 35 years, geez, I'll be in my 50s before I, you know, before that lease runs out. So it sounded like decades away and it was decades away, but it sounded like it was so far away that it would never, I would never see that day. And the reality is, is that time has this way of slipping by very quickly. And then uh, two years ago, I was approached by somebody who wanted to actually buy the building. And I, we were looking at this long term lease and we were saying, wow, we actually only have 11 years left. And when you have only 11 years left, you're actually starting to the value of that you hold is starting to really drop and minimize. And what people tend to do is they say, right, well, how much can you earn over that 11 year period? And they do a multiplier. And so that is how you can end up. So 35 years, you know, people don't apply a multiplier really to a 35 year lease. But when it starts to run down to kind of 10 years or less, 
that's when they start applying this and you can find yourself with very little value left unless you have this automatic right to renew it and here in Ireland automatic rights to renew can be overruled when there is a development uh, in play and so I mean obviously you have to pay compensation to the for the closing of the business but your business can be devalued quite quickly um, as time goes by and in the end we sold that property to a special purchaser so that was a particularly special situation and um, otherwise we actually could have been in a bit of difficulty. Okay, so I got a comment during the week and I'm going to call it a, a hater comment because he was kind of making a couple of negative points. But then he got into what he was basically saying was that um, I'm not from a working class area and uh, I don't live in you know a part of town that where people struggle economically. And so he was saying it's all a lot easier said than done when I'm talking about buying and selling property and all this. And I said to him, you know what, that's a fair point. It's not. But be very careful about creating limiting beliefs in your life because whatever you believe you can do or you can't do, it's true. And that that's actually an old Henry Ford statement. But it's it's so true. If you start the day believing that you can't do something, well, then you're never going to work up the courage to kind of try or anything like that. And that is one of the big problems that there is with the mindset. If you have given yourself some sort of a negative mindset, then it is going to be very, very tough to overcome that. And what you need to do is you need to kind of create a tough, resilient and tenacious uh, personality. And you need to basically be, put yourself in a situation where you never give up. Um, so if you don't give up and if you kind of say, you know what, I can do this, then really what all you have to do is you have to surround yourself with people who are kind of enablers. And by that, I mean, if you if, like do a quick audit on the people that you hang out with and just check out how many people that you have are people around you that are very positive, ambitious and want to do well, want you to do well in the world and want to do well themselves in the world. How many people do you know around you that have achieved the level of success that you want to emulate? And how many people that you're friendly with would prefer to kind of sit at home and watch TV and drink beer uh, than go out and actually kind of work and, and earn money and things. This is actually an important thing because you'll tend to find, now this is not a general comment, and this is also going to apply to families, by the way, but you'll often find that if you're surrounded by people who don't have the same kind of ambitions and stuff as you do, they will, and, and not necessarily because they want to hurt you, but they will try to hold you back in some way. And that happens uh, unwi unwittingly in, in many respects, but it's often a person's thinking, ah, sure, you know, why would you want to put yourself under all that stress? Or why would you want to do that? Sure, aren't you grand the way you are? And, you know, you get these kind of things. And it tends to be from friends who don't have the same ambition. They don't have the same resilience. They don't have the same sort of uh, mindset as you. And so just be careful who you get advice from and who you share your dreams and your plans with because you'll find that guys um, because of their own beliefs or perhaps their circumstances they might have a very different circumstance to you and so they might have good reason to have a kind of a negative view or maybe they've got a bad you know experience in their past but you'll often find people hold you back um, unwittingly um, but just because they have a different mindset to yourself so just be very careful to audit the people around you and make sure that the people you're asking for advice from are the kind of people that are going to give you good advice.
you don't want to be asking somebody who's never taken a risk in your life whether you should buy what you consider a risky investment because they're just automatically going to say no way no 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 but then equally if you go and meet somebody who's like a massive risk taker and you ask them should i buy this those guys might come back and say yes absolutely you know go ahead go for it and so just audit uh the the motivation of the people around you and just make sure that that coincides with what it is you're thinking because one of the worst things you could have is a situation where you find that you're you're just asking the wrong people and those people, a lot of the time, they will get left behind economically and they don't necessarily want to admit that to themselves. And so they're not going to want you to be the person who excels and starts moving ahead and things like that either. And so it's not necessarily done out of spite. A lot of the time it's just done out of, you know, whatever way they were brought up, they, they may have a completely different outlook than you. And so just be careful not to give those kind of self-limiting beliefs to yourself. All right, question from Sean Adamson. Now, Sean is 22 years of age. He has saved up um, a nice lump sum and he has a, a best friend who is the same age and has a similar lump sum. And they have found a four bedroom, two bathroom property in their hometown. I won't say where, but it's good value. They've told me it's 135,000, which I know that the average house price in, in Ireland is like 400,000. So that sounds like a fantastically good price. But this is where I want to mention again comparable evidence. And that's where it's super important because if you have comparable evidence, you will know immediately whether that's a good price or not. If, if you ask me, does 135,000 sound like a good price? And I live in a neighborhood where everything is a million. Of course, it sounds like, you know, it sounds like the, you know, the, the same amount of money I'd spend on a garage in a place with a million. But then if you live in a place that has property that's worth 50,000, then you're going to find that, you know, wow, 135, that sounds expensive to me. So again, it's all about comparable evidence. You've got to go and look at the area. That What are the prices in that area? Are they similar? Are they lower? Are they higher? And that's how you gauge it. You also need to know whether the property is better, uh, is in better condition than the surrounding properties or if it's in worse condition, the age, all and the configuration. A lot of the time, the configuration has to be something similar. Now, one of the important things is um, good condition, good value, all that kind of stuff. Now, one of the good things about this um, is that Sean came back and actually he, he did say that he has comparable evidence. So I'm actually going to go a little bit deeper with this particular one. He wants to refurbish the sitting room, the bathroom. He wants to put furniture in. One of the great things that he's got going from here, and I've mentioned this in the past podcasts, is that his dad is a carpenter and has agreed to do a lot of the handiwork in the property for free, um, which is great. Another thing that has been pointed out is that it's in a town with a big hospital and a lot of pharmaceutical companies in the area. Now, that sounds like there's tons of employment in the area. So my first reaction is, wow, that's brilliant. This is great. But the second reaction is, and this is just throwing a little bit of devil's advocate into it, is that pharmaceutical companies they are susceptible to the tax rate changing in the country that you live. Now, in this case, it's Ireland, and there's a lot of pharmaceutical companies here for the tax rate. But it is not beyond the uh, imagination, the realms of my imagination, that a big pharmaceutical company in that part of the country might turn around and say, you know what, we're going to relocate to Asia 
and we're going to close this factory down and there's going to be 1200 jobs lost and that's terrible sorry sorry about that and suddenly you find that you've got 1200 people that don't have a job in the town so just bear that in mind as a potential risk now the fact that you've got a hospital in the town does strike me as a benefit because they'll always be uh, i don't think that they're going to close down a hospital quite as quickly as a pharmaceutical who decide to close down so just bear that in mind um here's some of my observations on the value proposition you've got a comparables you're saying that the rent is usually about 1100 to 1300 a month so if you just do the maths on that and let's do this um while while we're sitting here 1100 a month is about 13200 a year and 1300 a month is about 15000 so the range of the property ra- rental range is between 13 and 15000 we'll say so you mentioned that the price is 135000 when you add in your costs of purchase uh, you know let's assume that say it's 5 to 10% so i'm going to assume that the property will end up costing you about 145000 and so initially it looks like a pretty good deal because 145,000 and your rent is between 13 and 15 so it looks like you're going to be picking up about a 10% yield and that's pretty good um i i mean here in dublin you'd be looking at kind of 3% for residential property so 10% sounds good but then again it is not in the in the in the capital city so that is one thing that is going to possibly fall back a bit um, in terms of buying your property, you're looking at if you're paying about 145,000 or uh, all in, you're probably going to need about 30,000 of a deposit. We'll say about 25%. And if you've got 30,000 of a deposit, and let's assume that you're going to spend about 10,000 on refurbishing the property. Now, your friend's dad may be doing the handiwork and the labor and stuff for free, but he's certainly not going to be paying all of the, the materials and all of the furniture out of his own pocket. So you're definitely going to have to spend some money. But it does strike me as a pretty good um, return. You're going to have immediately a profit rent by the sounds of it. I would imagine that this property will start generating a return for you. Uh, now, obviously, you're going to have to put in new appliances. Well, I don't know the age of the property that you get, you'll have to judge that. But if you want the property to rent quickly, nothing rents a property quickly uh, faster than something like a new cooker, new dishwasher, new washing machine, fridge, things like that. And um, yes, uh, somebody has just commented that you need to look at 10 years money there. Yeah, that is that is definitely one of the things that you should be thinking about is um, is thinking about how this thing is going to pay back um, over a a 10-year period. And that's why the 10% yield makes a lot of sense. Um, In terms of, I just was saying, appliances. When people walk into a property and they see nice appliances, they immediately start thinking, oh, this is nice. This is the first time let. Um, If you go in and you're opening a fridge and it's kind of dirty and the cooker is kind of like dirty and things like that it just puts people off and immediately makes them think oh this has been used before and you might kind of think well you know i don't want to spend all this money but sometimes a property can sit on the market for longer and you might think that you know i'll hold out for my you know 15 uh, my 1300 a month but if you if you're holding out for that and you've got you know appliances that are old and dated and stuff you might find that you take three months to rent it so you'll have lost nearly four thousand euro in that period of time and so you should just have a think about that does that four thousand euro 
spent on appliances and all that mean that you immediately start renting the place rather than wait three months trying to find somebody. So just these are some of the little things. Sometimes people can, they can try to save the pennies and end up costing them pounds. And that's something just to bear in mind. Also, when you're decorating a property, go for sort of subdued uh, colors like light grays and light beiges and things like that. Don't go for you know, really kind of stand out dark colors. Don't go for bright colors like reds and yellows. They actually shrink the size of the room and they make it look smaller and things like that. Um, make sure you get your electricals tested, your plumbing, your water tank checked, all of that stuff. Another question is, is it gas heated or electric? I can tell you electric is very expensive and it can put people off. I have a property that is an electric property, electrically heated property, and these storage heaters, they cost an absolute fortune. Um, I mean, even in the in the wintertime, the bills go up to like 750 a month. And we looked at gas heating, but the gas only runs up to a certain point down the road. And what what the gas company has said to us is that we need to group together and pay for them to extend the gas line to our entrance. And that would, I think they're saying it would cost about 75,000 for, for them to do that work. And they want the... I think there's 15 different people living in our building. So they want the 15 people to contribute to 75,000. Now, that would mean that we have gas central heating and that would mean that we're not paying these huge bills. But all it requires is one or two people to say no, which they did. And that means that everyone else would have to pay more. And it would mean the people that didn't pay still have the benefit of this connection at their doorstep. And so the whole thing went by the wayside and we still have electrical energy um, heating. And, and it's just, it's really annoying. Another thing that is important to bear in mind is your energy efficiency. And um, here in the EU and Ireland, we, we have a thing called a BEOR certificate. And that's all about the building energy rating. And it's becoming a very important thing. And nowadays it's actually, it's essential. You cannot actually have, uh, you can't sell the property, you can't rent the property unless it has building energy rating cert. But there's actually more than that. I'm not actually talking about the specific cert. What I'm talking about here is the, the whole way the economy is starting to change. A lot of people are starting to look at the environment and a lot of people are looking at energy uh, ratings and efficiency. And you've got the government in Ireland and also in the UK now, they're, they're putting grants out to people to retrofit their properties and to do all of this stuff to make it better insulation, to do a lot, uh, you know, to, to make sure that you're well insulated property, that your heating system is not an energy, a costly energy um, system. They're actually going to be banning gas central heating soon. Uh, so central heating systems will actually not be purchasable in a year or two. I can't, I can't remember exactly the dates. So if I were you, I'd just be careful to make sure that you don't have systems that are going to be uh, out of, that are going to be obsolete fairly soon. And it might be a good time to actually look at putting that kind of stuff in now. Just look at the systems. There's also, there's grants and stuff for this. So you need to look and see whether you can actually get some money back um, from the government or from the local government for grants to, to actually do your property up and make it better insulated and things like that. Um, lastly, before you rent a property, do your due diligence on your tenant and do not accept the first person that comes in the door and wants to rent the property. Or, well, you might end up accepting them, but don't accept them just because they're waving money in your face. You need to check their references. You need to go and get the landlord 
talk to their previous landlord, make sure they pay on time, make sure that. I've had nightmare scenarios where people have not paid me and um, and, and you try to get them out of the property and they're just, they're belligerent and they're really difficult. They keep on promising you. They're just bullshitting you and that's the bottom line. So I do think, take your time, make sure that you are paying a little bit of attention. Question from Kevin Jordan. And he asked, how has the use of technology and the likes of BIM, which is Building Information Management, influenced the, the current market worldwide? So do I see a future for a bigger role for uh, AOR and VOR, for virtual viewings, all this? So yes, <laughs> that's a great question, Kevin. One of the reasons I started my YouTube channel, PropTech TV, which I'd ask you all to sign up to and subscribe to and I'm, I'm, I'm at 89 subscribers now. I want to break 100. So if you guys, if you do me a big favor, go straight to PropTech TV, all one word on YouTube and subscribe. And if I can get it up above 100, it, it opens up all these kind of extra features for me and stuff. So that's my ask for this week. So getting into this question from Kevin, COVID-19 has transformed a huge amount of the world. We have got I would say COVID-19 is a, is a massive accelerant. And so there's a huge amount of technology that was starting to catch on that has just suddenly become explosive in its growth. And all you have to think about for a moment is Zoom. We're all now familiar with Zoom calls. How many of you were using Zoom on a regular basis a year ago? I would suggest very, very few of you. Now I had Zoom, I had a Zoom account last year but I had very few. I basically had a call once a month with some friends and that would be about it. I would do occasional um, discussions with people who lived abroad and that was it. Now I would say I do three or four Zoom meetings a week minimum and if not a day and, uh, and it's become just the way everything is happening. Now that is just Zoom. Everything is going through some sort of an acceleration as well. And what usually takes years for to become adopted is actually starting to get adopted in the in space of months. So that is going to really change the market penetration of a lot of these devices, a lot of these platforms, a lot of these systems. So prop tech, innovation in real estate, all of that stuff is definitely coming and it's going to be a feature. And I think anyone who's going to get into the property, and I see a question from Ushin, He's seven. How does a 17 year old, what's the best way to get in property? Um, Oshin, one of the first things I'd say is start looking at all of this technology stuff because it's going to give you a competitive advantage if you understand it. And um, there's actually a couple of podcasts that I've done on getting started. So if you go back and have a look at Behind the Facade, if you go back to, um, I think, episode nine, I actually go into how to get into this game and stuff like that. So that will answer your question. But the prop tech world. The world of prop tech is really transforming. It's one of the fastest growing sectors now. There's a huge amount of money, uh, venture capital pouring into the sector. And now there will be companies that struggle because of COVID-19. But you're also going to find that there is a huge change in the market. For example, uh, AOR and VOR, augmented reality, virtual reality. You're going to see a huge adoption of people like people like me who normally you know, rent buildings using agents and stuff. I will now be looking at everything through the eyes of COVID-19 and I'll be thinking, how much time have we lost because we didn't have 
virtual reality touring, uh, you know, viewing of our properties. We're selling houses in, you know, we're building houses in parts of the country here. And we're also building some houses in the UK. And, uh, you know, COVID-19 came along, all the agents are closed down, everything is shut down, that's it. And you can't now show your property. So you could fall months behind schedule and things like that. If you have got a virtual reality uh, viewing platform, you can actually just start marketing the property immediately. And so I do think that that is all up for grabs now. And it's not just that stuff. Anything that is digital is now going to become an option. And so what I'm looking at is, for example, selling the property using digital means is going to become something that I think starts to become much more of a possibility. I think blockchain, I think um, crypto, I think digital um, lease documents, all of this stuff, which currently is not accepted in many jurisdictions because the legal system doesn't allow it or whatever. I think that is all about to change because people cannot allow another lockdown. We've just noticed as I'm re- as I'm you know talking to you here, I read yesterday or the day before that Melbourne, Australia has gone into full six week lockdown for the second time. That's a that's a city with five million people living in it. Now, how many businesses can sustain two lockdowns in a year? Not that many. And so everyone is going to be doing this mad scramble towards digital technology, digital solutions. Another thing is going to be access and egress because COVID-19 is now this risk. I think things like, well, you'll already notice that when you go to the shops now to buy stuff, you just use your phone. I have stopped carrying a wallet. I just bring my phone, hover the phone over the thing and that's it, it's paid. And, you know, six months ago before COVID-19 came, if you went into the supermarket, the most you could pay was, you know, you know, maybe 10 or 30 pounds or euros or whatever. Now they've increased it to 300 in my local supermarket. And that just shows you the amount of people, the volume of people that are paying using their phone. And it's not just that, it's that they don't want to be touching keypads and stuff. So I think that touch, no touch technology is going to start creeping in everywhere. And I think what you're going to find is that as you walk up to a building, reaching out to grab a door handle, that is soon going to be something that is wiped out. You're going to have these automatic sensors that open the door for you. You don't need to put your hand on it. You're going to have instead of having to push buttons to ring doorbells and stuff, you're probably going to start to have facial recognition that recognizes your face and rings, you know, rings through to the reception or whatever. So you don't need to push buttons any longer. All of this stuff, I think, is coming. And um, keypads, intercoms, you know, everything like that. So that is my PropTech TV uh, YouTube channel. I go into a lot of that kind of stuff there. And um, I'm probably going to actually be interviewing a lot of guests um, on this stuff. I have a huge network of friends and, uh, and kind of peers that are in this PropTech space all over the world, you know, uh, Asia and um, the UK and the US. And so there is quite a lot of people that I'm listening, um, I'm listening to on podcasts and things myself. And I know these guys and I'm going to invite them in. So the next, not immediately, but in a couple of weeks time, you might start hearing from some of these guys talking about the technology that's coming. And these guys are right in the middle of it all. They're, they're at the call face. And so I think there'll be interesting um, podcast interviews. So that's pretty much it, guys. Um, I think I've come to the end of today's Q&A. And um, Ushin, um, who asked the question about getting into property, go and check 
the podcast. And guys, anyone who's listening, you if you're not on my uh, Facebook group, Behind the Facade Community, and that is what I'm actually recording live on here. So my community are watching this, but... Um, so next week, I'm thinking about talking uh, about alternative finance, which was another question that I got from one of the listeners. And uh, so things like peer-to-peer lending, mezzanine finance and crowdfunding, that is something that I know a little bit about. And I actually have a couple of friends that are um, actually running companies in that space. And so I'm quite interested to get, maybe get them to go and give us a bit of a talk. So that is it for episode 13 of Behind the Facade. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this episode useful, please consider sharing it out to a friend or indeed leave a review on whatever platform you listen in on. If you have any questions for future episodes, please send me a message over social or leave it on the Facebook page behind the facade. If you have any comments, uh, where please let me know where in the world you are listening in from. I love to know where I heard from somebody there earlier saying hello from Russia. So this is really interesting for me. It's just... You're just kind of scratching an itch for me. I love travel and things. Um, Guys, sign up to my newsletter. I'm going to be doing a couple of workshops, online workshops, covering this kind of stuff. They're probably going to be free, so but they're not going to be live like this. They're going to be uh, on a Zoom call that will be privately invited. So sign up to my newsletter. You'll find that at gavinjgallagher.com forward slash go. And that goes straight through to the newsletter sign up. And so lastly, guys, again, I just remind you that YouTube channel of mine, PropTech TV, I would love if you guys would sign up to it. And so until next week, hope you guys are well. Have a good one. Mm